0: We rode back and forth from wilkes to New York City on vacation. And it was obvious that something was brewing between us.
1: Hey there, welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories. The contemporary, personal, narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller will tell one of their stories and then break it down with me, Sean. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are in the middle of season two, which is dedicated entirely to women and their stories. And this week, I am joined by Nishama Franklin, who lives in Northern California. I met Nishama late last year, and she has been an absolute breath of fresh air. She's a dynamic storyteller, among many other things. So I am thrilled that she's joining me here on episode number 33 of Grit. As always, check the show notes for upcoming classes and events, and help us out if you listen on Apple. Rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast. It really does help listeners find it. And finally, I have another podcast I want to let you know about. It's called Suicide Noted. On that podcast, I interview suicide attempt survivors. It's not for everyone, but if it's something you need to hear, check it out. Okay, Nashama Franklin, let's dive in. Neshama, number one, thanks so much for being here. And number two, how did you get involved in this kind of storytelling? So I told my first story at The
0: Moth in 2013, but I had started before that with a workshop. I'll tell you about that workshop. Maybe a year before that. Wait,
1: 2013, and then you had the thing before. But do you remember why you did that? What was the...
0: Oh, yes. So I, I love to, st- because I am a storyteller, I have to start at the beginning. I started telling stories when I started to begin to talk. My uh, brain is just made for stories, but then, you know, when I was a dancer and a theater person, and you know, that was very exciting, I was very dramatic, but it was also kind of tedious, because you have to hang out at rehearsals, and you have to learn lines, and you know, I had little kids and all that stuff. So finally, I got this job at the library, and they had a Halloween show with traveling witches, dry ice coming out of the cauldron and the pointed hats and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and when got sick, and they said, hey, Nishama, you want to be one of our witches and tell a story? And I said, well, sure, because I'm up for almost anything. And I said, what story should I tell? And they gave me this folk tale that was absolutely grisly. You know, it had flayed skin in it. I said, I'm supposed to tell this to children. And they said, yes, they love it. <laughs> so what I did was I read that story, and I opened my mouth, and the story came out intact. So all of a sudden, that whole business of preparation and uh, memorization was gone, and I got to tell a story. So I did folk tales because I love folk tales, and I believe there is real as personal stories. Frankly, it's all the same. Story is story. If it gallops ahead and gives you something, it's real. People kept saying, you know, "I like your folk tales," but I really would like to hear something from you. And I didn't quite know how to begin. And I was at an interesting evening at the Dance Palace, which is <laughs> which is an old church in a town nearby. And my cousin had brought her masseuse's partner to do a show called "The Church of Eighty Percent Sincerity." His name was David Roche, and he has an, a rather spectacular facial deformity. He's very charming. And so he told the story of his, you know, how he got to where he was. And on the table was a flyer, and it said, your story must be told, you know, join this workshop and find out. And so I joined again because I like, I go to yes. It was A very sweet setup. It was David and his two teachers, Terry Tate, who also had a facial deformity, beautiful woman, and Joanne Smith, a kind of an editor type. It used the technique of story circle, which is you kind of sit around and you open your mouth and you check in and you become present and you see what comes out. There weren't any prompts. We just did this over and over and over again and I discovered this wealth of stories I really didn't know about. I realized in retrospect, there wasn't any critiquing, especially for me, because it just came out. They came out intact and they don't, they'd say, oh, wow. And so I did this perhaps for seven to 10 years. When I do something, I do it. You should know that even before this, for 20 years, I went to a story swap in a nearby town, and told uh, a folktale every month. So that's why I have this list after list after list of everything I've told. And you should also know that during COVID, I came upon this box of old video cassettes of these workshops, and I watched them all. They amazed me because they were the seeds of all the story I've, I've been telling for all these years, and I saw where they grew from and how they felt and Mm -hmm. how I was. And I actually got a friend to put them on something digital, so I'll have them available. When you're old, you have a lot of years to talk about, and I have a lot of years to talk
1: about. Yeah, (laughs) sure. So that story circle, they didn't critique?
0: Well, they could critique. But they never critiqued for me, because somehow I think of it as some mysterious gift, and that's one of the reasons that it's hard for me to anatomize what I do. It's kind of like I have a story template inside another thing about me is that i'm I do twelve step work I'm an alanonic and i have I work with a lot of people because I love what I do, and they say, "What did you say? What did you say?" And I say, I don't even know. It just comes Mm -hmm. to me from another place. And so (laughs) there, there you have it. Someone who just doesn't do stories the way other people do stories. I've seen lots of Other people who go to other coaches, I recognize the stamp on them, how they look in one direction, they look in another direction, they make these gestures. I'm not putting it down, because this person who does this coaching makes it very vivid and very powerful. But I Mm -hmm. want to do it my way.
1: (laughs) Yes. The reason I asked about the story circle was, I'm wondering, you said that you were doing folktales for a while, but you didn't really quite know how to make the jump to like your stuff.
0: Well, I, I just needed to prod. I, I needed a, a situation in which they would come out. Got and it. then once and they started coming out, I love the story of my first moth experience. Mm. Because I hadn't heard about it because I'm not that plugged into social media. And it had basically not started. It hadn't been around for that long in San Francisco. Uh, I saw this little announcement in the newspaper. And I said, hey, I could do that. And so I launched myself on the freeway. I live an hour and a quarter from where it was in on South of Market in San Francisco. I have a terrible sense of direction. This was pre-GPS. And it was really like one of those epic offals. I kept passing mysterious Erie Street behind a chain link fence always going in the wrong direction. I circled around and around and around. And then finally, I parked a distance away. I had to walk under the freeway. An old um, African-American woman said, honey, what are you doing here? I made my way to the moth and there was a line. It was sold out. And I said, I've come so far. And they said, well, just join these people. And, you know, sometimes we let others in if people don't show up. Mm -hmm. And so we formed a tribe out there. And a lot of them were actually practiced storytellers and or comedians. You'd think they'd know better and get a ticket, but they hadn't. And so by the time the mysterious, you know, a lot of people just left. And also it was like, november and it was cold and i wasn't prepared to stand out in the cold but i did because i was determined and then the rope lifted and the 10 of us who were left got in and they had all said to me i hope you get a chance to tell your story and sure enough i put my name in the hat and i i told my story and i, and I won and then that meant i got into the grand slam and i told my story <gasps> And I won. I mean, this was, these were the glory days. I have a friend who introduces me. She's a famous writer, but she, when she introduces me around, she said, here's a famous storyteller. Look her up on YouTube. And I said, those were, that was then,
1: you
0: know, it was a, it was a very heady time of winning and winning and
1: Grand Slam champion. Grand Slam champion. Grand Slam. How many Grand Slams have you won? The one or more than one?
0: No, I I was in four of them, and but I and I only won one. And I and again, I'm not a competitive person. You know, I don't do the competitive edge. I just look for telling the story that's on my mind and in my heart.
1: Yes, Nishama. When did you? The story you're about to tell. Yeah. Do you remember when you first penned? This story?
0: I don't pen anything. You
1: well, know you know me. what I mean. When did you first come up with it? When did you first? I
0: came it? up with it. I, I Actually, I think it was possibly one of the first Moth stories I did.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, we're going I, back so, a few years. It go. is
0: so seminal. It's so long ago. And yet these stories are embedded in us. It shaped me. Yes. In many, many ways. Yes. And, and it gets me back in touch with those incredible emotions of a younger person, which I now with my serenity of years are not that uh, accessible, except that I want to share um, a metaphor, which traveled with me through the moth uh, into the moth ball (laughs) where I told, uh, I told a one minute distillation. It's like your 99 seconds of, of a winning story. When I was working with it, I said, you know, We're all like Russian nesting dolls. Everything, you know, matryoshkas, everything that we have done is inside us. And all we have to do is twist off the right top and there it is. So I always want to go into that place where that vivid,
1: essential stuff lives. And you're about to. Okay. With me, why don't I stop talking and then you can tell your story and then when you're done with your story, we'll talk about it. Okay. Is that cool? Yes, very cool. So what
0: was a New York City girl doing in wilkes Pennsylvania, the anthracite capital of the world, though it was more slag heaps than anthracite? I, I was going to college there. Why college in wilkes Well, Well, I, I had I had a suicide attempt. And my parents, my long-suffering, confused parents, talked to Uncle Irv in Ellenville, our family doctor. And uh, he said, there's a place in Pennsylvania, the Children's Service Center, they'll get her straightened out. And they sent me there and I got straightened out. And I actually finished high school there. And I figured this was a good place to live. You know, I was far from the scene of the crime, which is what I called my parents' apartment. So I would go to college there. I was ready for college. And it turned out to be not the greatest fit. I mean, I was rooming with Sylvia Gutfleisch. She was the only other Jew on campus, I think. And her primary interest was her engagement ring, which she flashed at every opportunity. And uh, I was not that interested in classes. But I developed another interest that really surprised me uh, for a math teacher named Rush Miller. I'm not a mathematical person, but he had something that I could not stay away from. And it was a crush. I mean, I was only like 18. And I would do the kind of thing like I would stand under his window. This was a really small campus. And I would watch his silhouette on the shade until the lights went out, and then I would go back to my uh, attic room that I shared with Sil- Sylvia, and she would sigh over her um, engagement ring, and I would sigh over Russ Miller. And so how did we connect this non-mathematical person and this math teacher? We rode back and forth from wilkes to New York City on vacation, and it was obvious that something was brewing between us, but we couldn't do anything about it. He was a teacher, I was a student, and so and then I got kicked out of school um, for a full frontal embrace in the the common dorm room you didn't do this kind of thing in the in the late 50s and I had all that pent up lust. And so there I was back in the scene of the crime and I had to get a job and I was working at Columbia University in the registrar's office and I knew that Russ had some connection with Columbia, but, you know, I looked in the files, I couldn't find his name. Imagine my surprise when in the halls of Columbia University, there he was. This never happens in real life, the object of your affection right in front of you. Uh, You should also know that I had started a relationship with a very interesting man, but this was right it was like a platter in front of me and i could not ignore it and so he gave me that sardonic smile <laughs> and cocked his head and i went with him to the west end bar and grill that was the hangout at columbia and we sat in a booth i was not aware that behind me the booths had high backs was sitting john the of uh, taken up with and he observed this whole thing he was very sensitive very intelligent but he saw it go down and what happened was that a tryst happened immediately uh russ said hey you wanna and i said yeah i wanna and we went down to 42nd street uh, in New York City, which was very sleazy, to the Hotel Dixie and got a room for, you know, a couple of hours. And in it, there were three double beds with metallic spreads. We did not pull down the spreads, but on every one of those beds, something very interesting and exciting and sometimes disturbing happened. Russ was very skilled at this stuff. And I was an eager student. And then it was over and and he put me in a cab to go back to the scene of the crime, my parents' apartment where I was still living. And I thought, well, there I I got an answer to a a not so maiden's prayer. And and that was it. You know, that was great. And it was over, but it wasn't over. Uh, First of all, It unleashed an orgasmic response that never, didn't stop for two weeks, especially on the subway. These waves would just wash over me. And and then my period didn't come. I got pregnant from one or perhaps two or three shots in one night. And and you should also know that for all my sexual adventuring, I was a, a virgin and so there I was. What do you do if you're a dramatic pregnant teenager? I walked the dark alleys of the streets of New York singing mournful folk songs. I'm sick to my heart, and I fain would lie down, and I hoped that something would change, and it didn't. So I turned to my long-suffering parents, and they called Uncle Irv, and he said, it's legal in Cuba, take her for an abortion. And that's how we ended up during the holiday season in Havana. And there I had the abortion. And it wasn't as traumatic as you might expect because I was so young and tender and they were tender back with me. And I I also got my first taste of cafe con leche, the steamy milk and the dark coffee swirling together. Oh, it was so delicious. And then back in the hotel room, with everyone outside in tropical paradise whooping and into the pool, I could hear them through the closed drapes. I found myself weeping for 24 hours, and I don't know, even know what I was weeping about. And then they put me on the plane back to New York City. It was New Year's Eve, and they were going to stay on for a little vacation. And so when I arrived on New Year's Eve, I walked down the steps of the plane and there on the tarmac, that's how long ago this was, was waiting John with his arms wide open. And that was the beginning of 35 years of an incredible, rich, delicious, complex relationship until death hit us. Now, I know I should end the story here, but I have to add the coda. Who else came to to, um, Havana uh, that New Year's Eve the next day? Fidel Castro. My parents were marooned in the Havana Hilton, and they ran out of toilet paper until they could get back to New York City. And that's my story.
1: That's a great story. I feel like that story. You said you had first told it in um in at the moth. Five minutes. Right, right, right. And I
0: even described what Russ looked like, which I left out of this version.
1: So yeah, I was I was curious, and you may not know this because you've shared stuff around not remembering certain things, chronology and whatever else. I imagine the story's changed. Like the heart has probably stayed the same, but some of mm. the details have changed. Right,
0: right. I, I remember the silhouettes on The Shade and possibly Sylvia Gutfleisch.
1: I love but, that, that you added her exact I, name. I love
0: right. that. Well, I mean, it was, it, again, this stuff, that's the beauty of the wonder of storytelling is what you need to remember stays with you and enlivens mm-hmm. you. I have no idea how I compressed it, but that seems to be one of the things I, I seem to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I I want to quote one of your SWAT, brilliant SWAT members, the youngest of us all, Shweta Bhatt. When I was kind of um, lurching around uh, trying to work on a story, she said to me, hey Nishama." Give me that story in one sentence. All right. And so that you know, if if you're asking me for um, tips for storytellers. I will
1: be. Yep. That, yeah, good. I'm
0: good, but I'm going to give it ahead of time. What are you trying to say in one sentence? That will give you the heart of the story, and then you know how to dress it up and where to go with it. But it's so good to know where the heart of the story lies. Mm.
1: I know where I, how I feel about this okay, story. The, what, what's well, that, the heart of this, this story for you?
0: For me, the heart of the story is that I was able to make this essential detour in my life and get back to the man who was my, indeed, life's partner. Mm. I, I have to say that. But it all led up there. The great understanding and generosity of John who was you know, 28, that's a young man at that time, who was able to overlook stuff that would have made uh, ordinary mortals insanely jealous and sad. He yeah. just said, well, this is who I done got, and I love her anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, how many times do people have a relationship
1: like that in their lives? Most don't. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was really cool the way you didn't shy away from that's what you said, and I'm paraphrasing. This is where the story should end, but yes. I've got to add this coda. There would be people out there that say, you can't say that. You know, you got to end the story in the story. But I love it. It's like unapologetic. Uh-huh. Just like how you feel. Like, and it works perfectly.
0: Now, I know I should end the story here, but I have to add the coda. Who else came to Havana that New Year's Eve the next day? Fidel Castro. My parents were marooned in the Havana Hilton and they ran out of toilet paper until they could get back to New York City. It's great. I just feel that I'm giving you me in whatever shape and form I come in. And that is what I want from every storyteller. I want to know the me of them. And the more transparent they are, the better. And yeah. that's why I don't necessarily love the polished story, you know, that goes, but done. But if there's a little bit of grope in there, mm-hmm. there's the vulnerability that shows that this is was really important and they're just trying to get it as well as they can get it at
1: this very moment. I, you knew I was going to ask you, you already answered part of it, if you had a tip or two to newer tellers, especially. So that's one the one sentence thing with chueta right? Can you do well, it in one sentence? Show us yourself. Really. It doesn't need to be polished. We want to see you. And that's just the
0: third. If you want a third, no. don't just do it because it fits the theme. I mean, I've done a lot of lost stories that weren't necessarily heavy duty stories, but they were all aspects of my life that felt really real that I wanted to share, you know, make sure that it's something you really want some someone else to know mm-hmm. and they're willing to reveal mm-hmm. a little those are the stakes you know they talk about the stakes of the story and that to me i don't love the artificial. it's not artificial it's 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 deep in literature and in the human brain the arc of a story but i don't like having to anatomize it like that the stake is that this is something you really want to share because it's really important to you. There's another thing I haven't told you that I need to tell you, is that I think of everything I do and everything that everybody else does as yard goods for story. We're always making story. That's why life is so fascinating. And so if you look at your life like that, and I talk to my daughter every morning at eight o'clock, it's like, you know, religious service, and we describe our days, the days we have had, and those are stories. And sometimes I'll really be gross and say, well, what happened? And she said, mom, you're a storyteller, wait for it. But I'm an heir, I'm very eager.
1: (laughs) Just to be clear on a few things inside the story that you shared, Yeah. I usually wouldn't have this, but I was so intrigued. Fidel Castro, when he came, you're talking about the actual revolution? It was in 59? Yep. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Talk about historical timing.
0: Right. The conjunction, the wonders of conjunction. I mean, the wonders of Russ in the hall and the wonder of Fidel Castro. Yes. The wonder of my love of coffee. Yeah. I mean, think of, of what a link, an abortion and Cafe Con Lecture.
1: I went to Havana a couple of years ago. It was it's a fantastic, interesting, marvelous, and sometimes sad place. Mm-hmm. And it's changed some, I imagine, since 1959. 60 years or so of a particular kind of living, you know, but it's really a fascinating place. And boy, if you like to sing and dance, yes. they don't play. Well, they do play. They're just really good at it. Exactly. The embrace that got you expelled from school. What is, what did you mean exactly? Well, it was a full frontal embrace. That
0: means we were plastered up against each other. Um, A little story on that. He was my co-star in uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I was very dramatic. You know, I, I was in all the shows. He was a pipsqueak. I wasn't that attracted to him, but I had all this pent-up lust. So it was obviously radiating off my body into his. This was just what you don't do. You don't plaster yourself against another body where everyone can see, or probably not where anyone can see, because this was brutish late 50s.
1: That's enough to get you kicked out.
0: Well, and also I didn't finish my papers. I think I stuck that in there. I don't know if you did, Uh, but it's still worth Okay, now you know.
1: <laughs> the third, no, it's all good. The third thing that you mentioned—that that, something that uh, we don't talk much about—I happened to spend time with for another podcast. You had a suicide attempt. Yes, I was a very
0: dark child. I was an outsider. I was really—I never fit in. I was very miserable. I had not graduated from high school, and what was I going to do in my parents' apartment? And it was all grim, and I just wanted to end it. You know, a lot of aspirin, you no know, bad side effects, and also at Wilkesbury I I did another suicide attempt, and um, with the same stuff, I got pumped out, and Russ was kind of around for that. So, it, you know, there's a lot of darkness in there, which yeah. over the decades, the many decades, have li- has lifted. Mm. So I I want to offer that for anyone who's struggling. You know, l- luckily, if you don't take yourself out, something good may happen. Yeah. It has happened. Indeed. Uh, I have to quote this poet, Thomas Tranströmer. Friends, you drank some darkness. Oh, did I drink darkness. And I don't regret any draft of darkness that I drank. Because I think of the darkness as the chiaroscuro. If you don't have that contrast, if it was all working well, you'd have no
1: stories. Mm. I tend to be drawn to people that are okay going there. Like you do. And it's not all dark. It's just part of it. It's part of it.
0: What I discovered at the moth is that uh, I do not try to be funny, but they kept laughing. So something something is going on there.
1: Yes. Do you have a favorite storyteller you've heard?
0: I knew you were going to I that. knew you wouldn't answer I, this I, question. I, can. I prepare. I finish my papers these days. Everybody's
1: um, the best, I, I
0: know. Yeah, of course. At the Women's Storytelling Festival, which happened on Zoom, I was exposed to such fabulous women storytellers. And I have to tell you, through Zoom, you can get intimate with these tellers whom you'd ordinarily see far away on a stage at a big festival, but here they are right in your living room. You can chat with them, you know, in the chat. Yes. Or you, you can express your appreciation. And one I had never heard of, and I don't know, is Misty Mator. Ooh, and I'll Misty, tell you yes. why I love her. She's yes. young. Yes. She's very beautiful, although beauty, mm-hmm. you know, and she managed to tell a folk tale, which was the story of her mother so beautifully very recently and i said that is what i would love to do in my life misty does it i don't have to do it and, and and i also didn't know because she was so present in the story who this luna was was she talking possibly even about herself but no it was her mother so she's someone i i just think is spectacular okay. and then there's a. Uh, A woman, Jennifer Monroe, she's British. She is kind of a literary storyteller. And I'll tell you what I love in storytellers most. When they go all out dramatic, I, as a dramatic person, don't love it. Mm -hmm. I love a little bit of restraint, a little bit of slant. You know, that is what attracts me most in storytellers. And I'm not knocking the other ways but this is what feeds me it's the most delicious bites you could say of story
1: yeah for sure when you put a story together you don't write it down no
0: i play with it i talk it i talk it in the car i talk it on hikes then when it's you know when it's talked enough and i know i have a time limitation i time it with my little timer I have a heat mask that I have to put on my aged eyes for six minutes. And while I'm lying under that heat mask, God, I can't read. I tell my story to see if it fits in. So it gets a workout. And then, of course, in your swap group, when you guys Mm -hmm. start to take it apart, what a challenge. And it's amazing to me. And sometimes I'll do it. Sometimes I don't they just zero in on such interesting material there.
1: Sometimes when you're crafting stories or going through that process, and then you've got the story and the way you deliver it, you have this certain, almost sort of unique musicality or cadence, and those things are so you. Is there anything in that that you wish you would be consistently do better? Do you think about it that way ever?
0: I don't. I don't. I just am happy with what I done got at this age. I can't believe that I am plugged into such a vital source, you know, Mm. and that it stayed with me so long.
1: Yeah. The story you just shared, you know, what are we going back like more than 60 years? I was 18. Right. So you practice. So whether you, you don't write it out, but you practice and practice and practice.
0: And as they say at the moth, "Know your first line, know your last line. It's the parentheses, and it won't leave you groping either at the beginning or the end. The moth, and you know, other things, certainly that you do, the listeners are behind you, and they want to make it work, and they'll just get, they'll cut you slack, and they'll send you encouragement. And so that's why people needn't freak out about if they have a lapse. And and, in folktales, you can always say, and I forgot to tell you. Um, And you can always do that in your personal story. And also in your personal story, nobody knows what you forgot because they don't even know the story that's coming up.
1: Exactly. You know what you maybe intended to say. Right. But we probably don't. Right. We probably don't know. What else? Okay, I'm just so happy
0: to be here with you, Sean. Um, you, you tumbled into my life through Zoom. I had <laughs> no idea what, that this was going to be my primary, my, the finger on the storytelling pulse during COVID. And I, I love you because you're Jewish and you're snarky and you have <laughs> a really tender heart. And you come and you keep doing it no matter how you feel. You're just there for us. And that encourages to be there for
1: you. I appreciate that. And you have, uh, I don't know when it was our paths first crossed. It wasn't that, that long ago. But you have definitely enriched the community with your presence and your stories and your feedback and everything else. So I appreciate that. I'm sure everyone else does too. And what a story. What a great story. Beautifully told. And you know, uh, recently the litmus test I used, and you might appreciate this, is do I want to hear what this person is saying? Like, I don't break it down. I'm not reverse engineering it. No technique. No. I Every time you open your mouth, I wanted to hear what came out next. And I think that's as good a litmus test as anything. Yes. I wanted to hear what the next thing was. I was really interested and engaged. If you can do that for five or seven minutes, I mean, what a gift, really. Thank you so much.
0: Mm. Sean, uh, you also are coming with me on my hikes because I'm listening to the, I listen to the whole podcast. I oh, mean it's so on cool. coming and going but I'll accept it because it's so good. I live in a town surrounded by national and state parks. I walk downtown from my house to the beach and around from Brighton to wharf, you know, and come back. That's like an hour and a half of a walk. Wow. With poles. This is really important. Hiking poles that are very good for stability and upper body workout. I mean, I never wanted an accoutrement in my hands. I wanted to be free, but this is the body is aging and it could use a little help. So I have the poles and I have um, your podcast coming through my hearing aids via Bluetooth from my phone. Oh, I love it so much. You're not my nose at technology. But I really, I really love having this stuff intimately playing in my head.
1: Yes, I kind of, I kind of don't love technology either, but yet it allows my voice to be going through your ears in Northern California on a hike, talking about story and hearing stories. Wow.
0: And, um, and I do listen to myself and I don't cringe. I, you know, I really accept this package that I've been given, you know, I better accept it now. You know, it's not going to last all that long. (laughs)
1: Hmm. Well, thank you very much again. Uh, it, great story. I appreciate the talk and enjoy your hike. Are you going to go hiking today?
0: Um, I am because we are done. I'm so happy that we did this. It really fills my heart. So this was our day, Sean. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. And now on that very happy note, I'm going to go. Thank you so much for everything you do.
1: I'll talk to you soon, Nishama.
0: Okay, bye-bye.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Nashama out in Northern California. Remember, check the show notes for upcoming events and classes. And if you listen on Apple, help us out. Rate, review, and or subscribe. It helps listeners find this podcast. Thanks so much. That is all for episode number 33. Boom.